had a big day today, and don't let those cheaters and crooks think anything different. That's Carrie Lake, who came up short in her bid to become Arizona's governor. But she wasn't going down easily. If we have to fight through the BS and the garbage, then we will fight through the BS and the garbage. But how do you get fair and free elections? You have to fight and win to make them fair and free. And we needed another stark reminder that we have incompetent people running the show in Arizona. To be fair, there were problems with voting. For example, printers at some polling sites produced ballots with ink that was too light to be read by vote-counting machines, which caused ballots to be rejected. Some voters had to stand in line, vote elsewhere, or deposit their ballots in secure boxes that were transferred to downtown Phoenix and counted there. But an independent analysis shows that all this affected Democratic precincts just as much as Republican ones, and election officials stress the bottom line is that no one was denied the right to vote. But to extrapolate such things as Lake did into the broader charge that the election in the Grand Canyon state was corrupt and neither free nor fair is a problem unto itself. It can be seen as further alienating citizens and eroding trust in our institutions. The false baseless charges can be considered disinformation. Much further upstream, all of this is delightful for American adversaries who see their long-term efforts to weaken and divide us continuing to pay dividends. We'll talk with a security expert about this, a man who has served under four presidents from both parties. I'm Paul Brandis, and that's the name of this series. It's called simply Disinformation. And I'm Meredith Wilson, founder and CEO of Emergent Risk International, and I'll be providing analysis throughout each episode. Our guest is John Cohen, former acting under Secretary for Intelligence and the Counterterrorism Coordinator for the Department of Homeland Security. As I mentioned, he has served under four presidents from both parties. Our conversation began with his concerns about how American adversaries are leveraging modern technology and platforms to hurt us. Disinformation, as you know, goes back to the beginning of time, I suppose. But now we have the Internet, we have social media, which are accelerants. They've also lowered the bar, frankly, for anybody who wants to manipulate audio, video, post things online, make things up, spread it easily. Uh, tell me about this dynamic that we're dealing with today. Yeah, I mean, as you're as you just said, um, the use of propaganda, the use of disinformation, uh, the conduct of information warfare is not new. Um, I started my career during the Cold War. Uh, I was involved in counterintelligence operations uh, targeting the KGB and the GRU. And one of the techniques that they used was the active measures program, where uh, a great amount of resources were developed uh, and used uh, by the Soviet Union, uh, often directed against the U.S., where disinformation or uh, made-up content was spread in the hopes of weakening the U.S. Uh, but as you also pointed out, um, 
the internet and the broad use of social media and other internet-based communication platforms has added a new fuel or to some degree steroids to that to that to those efforts uh, so ironically the playbook that's being used by russia today is very similar to the playbook that was developed by the soviet union um, but today what's different is that russia and i think one can also argue other countries now like china and iran have adopted the soviet playbook but are using uh, the internet-based communication platforms that are so prevalent in our lives uh, to engage in information warfare against the United States. How has disinformation changed the way we conduct our elections? The information operations uh, employed by countries like Russia uh, have been, from their perspective, incredibly successful uh, in undermining the public's confidence in democratic processes broadly uh, and the election process specifically. To understand what I mean by that, let's take a step back. Uh, countries like Russia do not interfere with U.S. elections simply because they want to disrupt the election. It's part of a broader strategy employed by the nation state to sow discord in the U.S., to undermine confidence and credibility in domestic institu in de democratic institutions, um, undermine confidence and credibility both domestically and abroad in the U.S. government specifically, and to disrupt our relationships with our key allies. They do this because they're trying to project a stronger uh, geopolitical presence abroad. They're trying to achieve their geopolitical objectives, and they're trying to destabilize and weaken the U.S. So when a country like Russia or China or Iran uh, produces information that they use the internet to spread in hopes that it will influence how people vote or it will lessen uh, people's confidence in the election process, they're doing it as part of the broader strategy. Now, placed on top of that is that we are an incredibly polarized an angry nation politically. Um, the you know in the forty year or close to forty years that I've been involved in homeland security and law enforcement, I've never seen the country this divided. And what's different uh, is that we tend to view those who disagree with us, whether they're in government or our neighbors, as the enemy. And increasingly, we're seeing people who advocate violence as an acceptable way to express one's disagreement with the government or elect or an election. Uh, or a disagreement with another's position on public policy issues. So it's this combination of anger and violence that not only provides the opportunity for countries like Russia, but makes the, the outcomes of an information operation so much more dangerous from a threat perspective. They're, they're just throwing gas on a fire that's already burning. Exactly. Exactly. They and and it, and you know while it, while people don't typically like to go here, um, part of the problem is, and part of the objective of these information uh, operations is to have this content, have these narratives mimicked, migrate across, mimicked by mainstream figures. So when for political purposes or media purposes. Uh, public personalities mimic the same narratives being promoted by 
um, these nation states or even uh, terrorist or extremist thought leaders, um, it adds to the volatility of the threat environment. It validates that message. And when you have a person out there in our society who is looking for something to justify that individual's use of violence as a way to express their anger, hearing a public figure, whether they're in public office or on the media, um, you know, mimic these narratives, this content, it's very powerful and validating. Uh, and, and that's part of the danger as well. This series on disinformation is a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International, a global risk advisory firm. Emergent Risk International, we build intelligent solutions that find opportunities in a world of risk. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Shifting gears, I talked with about two weeks ago, uh, John, a professor at the University of Singapore who studies disinformation in a different way, its effect on actually actual physical damage to the country, not just hearts and minds. He said that disinformation can actually damage our physical infrastructure. Is that a concept that you are aware of? Tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, while we, you and I have been talking primarily about um, the use of information operations by hostile foreign powers, we also see these same techniques you, being used by terrorist groups and, and uh, by foreign terrorist groups and domestic violent extremist organizations. Uh, and in in much of the the content that we see being promoted on those extremist forums. They not only just call for violence generally, but they talk about specific ways in which the violence can be perpetrated. So they talk about attacks against elected officials, both Republicans and Democrats, by the way. They call they talk about attacks directed at election officials. They talk about targeting uh, synagogues, churches, mosques, uh, public facilities for violence. But they also talk about 
how one could uh, attack uh, electrical infrastructure, um, telecommunications infrastructure, and they discuss it within the context of trying to create um, events that will accelerate the coming of a new civil war. Um, there are what we call accelerationist communities that exist within the United States. Their objective ideologically is to bring down the current government. Uh, they identify violent activities as the way to accelerate what they call the coming the coming violent overthrow of the government. Uh, and they will often advocate, um, again, justifying it by the use of some conspiracy theory, uh, advocate uh, acts of destruction or targeted acts of violence uh, directed not only at those groups that I mentioned earlier, but a part of our critical infrastructure. There, a recent example is um, there was a conspiracy theory that the 5G telecommunications infrastructure uh, was actually the underlying cause for COVID. Uh, and within these extremist and accelerationist forums, they advocated for vandalism and targeting of the 5G infrastructure in the United States, uh, as well as Europe. And we actually did see acts of vandalism directed in Europe uh, at cell towers uh, and other parts of the infrastructure. Recently, uh, in these same extremist forums, we've seen calls for attacks against the electrical grid. The, the justification being attack the electrical grid, particularly in the hot days of summer, it'll stress people out and they will become more willing to violently overthrow the government of the United States. The challenge here for law enforcement is that we have two sort of conflating issues. One, we have an increasing number of people in our society who are, are, are angry. They are looking for the justification to use violence as a way to express that anger. They're spending a lot of time online line, viewing content to find that justification. And secondarily, we have a online and media ecosystem that is saturated with extremist content, conspiracy theories, uh, and other content that's placed there specifically by foreign intelligence services, by foreign terrorist groups, by domestic violent extremist thought leaders who are, are yes, they're seeking to sow discord, destabilize our society and undermine credibility in our government, but they're also seeking to inspire violence. This is terrifying stuff. I, you know, I mean, everybody knows it's there, uh, but listening to you, I mean, this is genuinely the stuff of nightmares. And I keep thinking of something that uh, the these IRA terrorists uh, it, it said many years ago when they tried to kill Margaret Thatcher, the former prime minister, and they nearly did at a hotel, uh, I think 1983, 1984, something like that. And uh, they said, we only, the gist is, we only have to be lucky once to do something. And it seems to me that with all of these nightmarish scenarios you're talking about, I mean, the power grid, and they only have to be lucky once to really do something, don't they? I mean, that's really scary stuff. Yeah, you know, I would actually argue that um, the threat has evolved. It's a very different threat than the one we faced on September 11th. But in many respects, the threat we're dealing with today is, as you put it, not only different, but scarier than the threat before, because we've spent billions and billions of dollars establishing a counterterrorism capability 
that was uh, intended to stop attacks by foreign terrorist groups operating abroad who worked within organizational an organizational framework who engaged in certain communication and travel activities. And it was that communication and travel activities that allowed us to identify operatives before they conducted an attack. Today, the primary terror threat facing the United States comes from lone offenders, individuals who uh, who are feel socially disconnected, they're angry, they spend a significant amount of time online, they ultimately self-connect with a cause or grievance, uh, that validates their use of violence. Uh, and from a law enforcement and intelligence perspective, that's a very difficult threat to mitigate. Uh, and it's not that it's uh, simply conjecture that this is what we're dealing with. Uh, we're in the midst of uh, a threat environment where we are literally dealing with mass casualty attacks in the United States on a day-to-day -day basis. And while the motives behind these attacks um, may vary, that what we have learned is that the behavioral characteristics of these attackers are very much are very similar uh, and they are their their violent actions are driven by the content they're viewing online and as i mentioned before that content that they are often consuming that they are connecting with that they are using as the justification to go into a school or a nightclub uh, or um, a government building uh, and engage in a mass casualty attack was put there purposely by others who engaged in violence, foreign intelligence services, terrorist groups, or domestic violent uh, thought leaders who are violent extremist thought leaders who are seeking to inspire acts of violence in the U.S. to achieve their ideological objectives. So it's a very scary environment. And thus the link between disinformation and potential mass casualty attacks, the link between disinformation and taking down the electric grid. What other parts of the infrastructure, in your view, could be vulnerable? Telecommunications, banking, electrical, you know, power grids, um, transportation. I mean, we had the- Oh, everything, basically. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the difference in the threat environment today is that targets are being selected because they're accessible. Um, it doesn't take a lot of operational planning or, or sophisticated operational activity to take a high-powered rifle and shoot at transformers. It doesn't take a lot of uh, sophistication to go into the subway and begin shooting people. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of sophistication to take your car onto a college campus and start running people over. It doesn't take a lot of sophistication to walk into a school and begin shooting people. Um, and those are all examples of attacks we've experienced uh, over the last several years. And, you know, unless we get a handle on this, um, you know, we're already seeing the tempo of these attacks are increasing. Um, it shouldn't be a surprise because the, the, the polarized nature of our society is becoming more hardened. Uh, and but unless we we come together as a nation, Republicans and Democrats, and decide that enough's enough, we're going to continue to experience these attacks. I'll share something. I mean, I continue to teach, uh, and I met with my class last night, and we were discussing this very issue. Uh, and I asked, uh, and these are all graduate students, and many of them work in government. And I asked the class, um, so what's the solution? And one young person raised their hand and said, there is no solution. This is just where we are as a society. 
And my next question was, so what would have to happen? What would have to happen to bring Republicans and Democrats and all parts of our society together and to decide that we want to change, that we're going to change our individual behavior regarding how we consume information. We're going to change the the dynamics of our political discourse so that we're not viewing, you know, our, as you pointed out, our those who disagree with us as the enemy, where we're going to be able to express our frustration with government programs and policies without um, calling for the violent overthrow of the government or the storming of the Capitol, uh, where we can express our fear and concerns about how the government is dealing with the pandemic and how it affects us as a, you know, whether it's on the community level, the family level, or the societal level, without believing that the pandemic was a result of some globalist conspiracy uh, intended to displace the white race. Um, until we do that, and, and I'm not trying to sound pessimistic, but until we do that, my concern is that we are continued, going to continue to experience one mass casualty attack after mass casualty attack. I'll be back to break this down with analyst Meredith Wilson right after this. Welcome back for further analysis. Let's bring in Meredith Wilson now. She is the chief executive officer of Emergent Risk International. Meredith, welcome. You know, we just heard John Cohen, the longtime counterintelligence official, give a a pretty gloomy assessment of the security situation. He says our political discourse is so toxic and divisive that the probability for violence will remain. He mentioned the lone wolf, the guy sitting at home online all day, being exposed to false information. He says this is one of our greatest security threats. What's interesting is we had this chat just before this recent infrastructure attack in North Carolina. Your thoughts on all this, please, and I understand you have some data to share. What happened in North Carolina, uh, this was this last weekend, uh, first weekend of December, um, something that, that that popped up on social media, which I know they're still trying to run down, um, you know, was that there were a couple of, um, of random comments very shortly before and after that happened um, that alluded to that somehow being connected to an LBGTQ event that was happening in the area in Monroe County. Um, It's unclear whether or not that is connected, but there was some indication that it might have been. But interestingly, that is not by any means the first infrastructure attack we've seen here in the U.S. this year. Um, or, you know, ever. We've, we've definitely had these before. But what's really interesting is when you pull the Department of Energy statistics, the number of sabotage, uh, cyber, uh, physical attacks um, has almost doubled this year from last year. So, um, and, and this is before 2020 even ends, and I'm pretty sure that these numbers don't include this most recent one. Um, but there were 15 total last year, and uh, this year there have so far been 25. Um, but that, is, that number is exponentially higher than, um, you know, than most prior years. This is a, you know, this is a phenomenon that we're seeing increase um, and that we've seen increase over the last couple of years specifically. Um, the the discussion about the 5G towers specifically, um, a lot of those initial attacks on 5G towers um, came 
right at the front end of COVID um, and and uh, and shortly before that, where there was a bunch of kind of conspiracies going around about COVID being related to 5G towers or that COVID was being created by 5G towers. And this was not exclusive to the United States. This happened in South America. This happened in Europe, where groups were going out and disabling 5G towers because they were convinced that it was somehow connected to COVID-19. So it's not just um, conspiracy theories. It's uh, it's it's, it's everything from conspiracy theories to groups with, you know, with grievances about different issues um, going out and doing this because it is a it's a relatively easy thing to do. Right. You have a gun, you have, you know, some kind of tool. Um, electrical substations are oftentimes not well guarded. They might have a chain link fence around them, but there's not much else. Um, you probably wouldn't want to get in there and touch one, but to stand from a distance and fire something at a, a substation is pretty easy to do. So it's not all that surprising that it's happening, but it is very worrying. Uh, looking at all of the other data that you mentioned, is there any common thread about those that uh, that we can discern? I do know, and, and again, um, Mr. Cohen alluded to this in his discussion, that this is something that the FBI and DHS has been watching pretty closely for quite some time, um, partially because they are seeing um, such an increase, but also because it's being talked about, right? It's being chattered about. You get onto you know, some of the more extreme websites, some of the more extreme rhetoric that comes out from, um, you know, from tweets or uh, things like that. It's actually something that's being talked about and chatted about in these sort of, um, you know, in these groups of, um, you know, with more extremist ideas and intentions. And so um, I don't think that it's, uh, again, I don't think that it's surprising, but, um, but I do think that we're probably going to see more of it in the, you know, in the coming months and years. The other thing about the energy infrastructure, you made a good point, Meredith, is that uh, they're vulnerable because they're largely unguarded substations and things like that. Is that why they're being targeted? Uh, what about other infrastructure? Is it harder to uh, take on, say, other things or just uh, energy is particularly vulnerable and uh, that's what they're choosing? You know, I think there's probably a number of reasons and I'm certainly not inside of these, uh, you know, these individuals' heads, but, um, you know, the the electric grid is something that we have been concerned about for years, right? Whether it's nation state actors, and this is something else we've seen, right? In, um, in uh, Ukraine right now, the Russians are, you know, are, are attempting to bomb Ukraine, you know, back to the stone age, if you will, um, by taking out all their electrical infrastructure. So they have um, a large number of the attacks that they've mounted is just in the last four to five weeks uh, after the, um, the bridge and the Kerch Strait was, was, uh, was bombed. Um, have been directly targeting the electric grid. And so in Kiev, a lot of people don't have power right now. Um, in other parts of um, non-occupied Ukraine, a lot of people don't have power. Um, it is a high priority target for them because it's winter and um, you know we're moving into a, a time period where that's really going to be painful for them. Here in the US, um, you know, there is that you know, I wouldn't say it's copycat, but people do see what happens overseas and they do see, um, you know, these types of things going on. And, um, you know, they could get ideas from that. Um, it could be that it, you know, it may seem to them to be a high impact 
low pain sort of scenario where they're not directly hitting anybody. They're not, uh, they're not killing anyone. Um, so they're not doing anything like a mass casualty attack, but they're going to get attention because they're taking out power. Um, however, the, you know, the reality is that there is a, um, you know, that there is a cost to that. And that includes taking out power um, in hospitals where people are reliant on electricity to, uh, you know, to, to breathe. Um, and especially people that are in their homes that are in a situation like that, where they don't necessarily have a generator or something like that. So it does actually have a physical impact. But um, I wonder sometimes if that's not one of the reasons. And the other one, again, is that it's easy. And, you know, if you're if you take out a little power substation that's up in the mountains somewhere and nobody's around, um, you know, it's a relatively low, um, at least immediate, you know, chance that you're going to get caught. How do we fix this? And, you know, how are we going to make this better? And and it really is a whole of society problem. How do you unwind that? And uh, I wish I had the answer to that. Thanks to John Cohen for his insights in this week's episode. Our sound designer and engineer, Noah Fouts, audio engineer, Nathan Corson, executive producers, Michael DeAloya, and Gerardo Orlando. And on behalf of Meredith Wilson, I am Paul Brandis. Thanks so much for listening. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.